Uh, if you're listening on the recording, you'll need to read through 1 Samuel 25 because I'm not really going to refer back to it in, in much detail uh, and it'll be good for you to be familiar with it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living, that you speak through your word today. I pray that you would just open our hearts, our lives, our minds to you, and we invite your spirit to speak to us words of challenge, words of conviction and encouragement that we might go from here changed and renewed and refreshed. Amen. As many of you know, I enjoy a good TV show. Uh, Sometimes it's a drama, an intense family drama. Sometimes it's comedy. Sometimes a a thriller or a crime show, a whodunit. But regardless of a show's genre, the thing that always determines whether or not I end up liking the show is the same. And I don't think this is just the case for me. It's the characters. If I don't care about the characters because they're not compelling uh, or they're not convincing, then I usually give up watching it, right? Any of you feel that way about TV shows? Yeah. You, uh, I try watching a show, but if in that first episode or the second episode I just think, ah, I don't really care what happens to these people, <laughs> then that's it. End of story. But if I want to know what kind of decisions they're going to make, if I find them compelling and interesting and I want to know what they're going to do and how their actions are going to affect you know, the way things go, I end up enjoying the show and I stick with it. Characterization is vital. It's a key element in novels, in stories, non-fiction and fiction actually. It's a key element in books, in movies, TV shows and in biblical literature. It's a key element. Characterization is vital. And as you may already be thinking, it's a vital element in our lives as we live from day to day. Characterization is vital. Well, how does characterization work? I hear you asking. And I'm glad you've asked that because I can't wait to tell you all about it. It happens in ways that are obvious and it happens in ways that are not so obvious. Most obvious, in Old Testament narratives anyway, are the names of central characters. It's one of the first and most obvious ways that a character is characterised. It's a bit like Pilgrim's Progress. Who here has read Pilgrim's Progress? Quite a few of you. It's about a character called Christian, who is a Christian. And he's on his way through life and he bumps into various people. He encounters an evangelist whose name is Evangelist. He uh, runs into someone called Envy, Hypocrisy, a really obstinate guy called Obstinate. You guessed it. Come on, work with me here. He bumps into someone called Help, who incidentally... Helps him. Yes, that's right, you guessed it. You're starting to understand the show. It's a, not the show, it's a, the book. It's a classic for good reason, John Bunyan. Um, and you can read it from quite a young age because the names of the characters spell out what is about to happen. So when we come to Old Testament narrative, it's quite similar. Adam and, uh, and, and Eve uh, are the first example. Adam is the word for earth. Eve means life. And to these two, uh, God entrusts the care of earth and life. 
Abraham means father of many. Sarah means princess or queen. And their names are changed, you might remember. Isaac means laughter. Moses means drawn out, just as he is drawn out from the Nile, where all the other baby boys are being thrown to kill them. But he is drawn out. And just as he draws them out and is saved, he goes on to save the people of Israel, the Hebrews. And so it goes. Names are often very meaningful in the Old Testament, and especially at the beginning of the Old Testament, the earlier chapters in the Bible. And as you probably know, a change in name signifies a change in destiny, in direction. An altered future is offered to someone when they are given a new name. It's a significant event when Jacob becomes Israel, for instance. So what are we to think of Nabal? Well, not very much, apparently, because Nabal means fool. That's the meaning of his name. As one Jewish scholar Old Testament scholar has said, this is character assassination, right from the beginning. It's like meeting someone who says, hi, my name's Moron. (laughs) Nice to meet you. You see, other passages in the Old Testament describe the naval, the fool, as an embarrassment to his father. Proverbs 17.21 says, the parent of a fool has no joy. And that's significant. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. Jeremiah 17.11 says that hoarders, those who amass wealth unjustly, are fools. Naval. That's exactly what Nabal does. You probably know Psalm 14 verse 1 or 53 verse 1. Same thing. Which describe an atheist as a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Again, the word naval. All of these things seem to be true of Nabal in our story. But perhaps it's Isaiah 32, verse 6, that is most pertinent. There it says that fools refuse to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty, which is precisely the sin or the error of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. So this is bold characterization, right? It's in your face. It's obvious. Like a character uh, in The Pilgrim's Progress. And this is one of the ways that characterization works. But I hear you wanting more. How else does characterization work? I hear you ask. Well, let me tell you. It works in other subtle ways as well, just as it does in our daily living. Let's begin with the narrator. The narrator in Old Testament narrative always tells the truth, right? You can trust the narrator. The narrator is the voice that is omniscient, knows everything, and tells you what you need to know. And the narrator introduces Nabal in this way. Well, with reference to his, his possessions. There was a man in Maon whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it just so turns out that that characterization, those details, will be very important for understanding this guy. Nabal's rich, but it's, it's his, his possessions will be his undoing. Well, not his possessions themselves, but his attitude towards his possessions. And as the plot unfolds, we discover that Nabal will not share. He won't. He won't give. And his refusal to give, Nabal's refusal to share, is his death. Leads directly to his death. 
Nabal's refusal to give and to bless others leads directly to his death. That's a powerful message, is it not? And so in the next verse, he is characterized by the narrator as being surly and mean. Those words mean that he is cruel, even abusive. He mistreats people. Those are the narrator's comments, but as well as those, we hear about Nabal's character from his servants, from his wife, and these are some of the ways that characterization happens. His servants describe him as ill-natured. That's a nice way of putting it. That's in verse 17. The Hebrew is a son of Belial, a son of worthlessness, a worthless fellow you might have in your translation. And Abigail calls him the same thing in verse 25, his wife, his wife calls him a son of worthlessness. And she goes on to explain exactly what she means, just in case it wasn't clear. Don't take this worthless guy seriously, she says, because as his name suggests, he's a fool. Ouch. (laughs) This is his wife's analysis. Do you ever wonder how people talk about you behind your back? What words or phrases they use to describe you? Do you ever wonder how you are being characterised in the story that is your life? Who are you turning out to be in the eyes of family, friends, other students? Because there's really not much that's positive to say about Nabal in this story. And Nabal's navalness, if you like, is so in your face that we have to ask as readers, what exactly are we reading here? This is unusual. We've had all this narrative about David and Saul, right? We've been reading through that and preaching through it. Suddenly we've got this story within a story. And this is a fascinating uh, aspect of this chapter, which we don't really have time to go into this morning. But a lot of readers have identified this as a story within a story, that Nabal the fool represents Saul in the bigger narrative. And this is almost like a parable that really puts it in your face, what's going on with David's life and with the decisions that need to be made. It's an interesting question and we might come back to it, but we're not done yet with our primary question, are we? The one that you guys asked earlier. How does characterisation work? Well, we've noted his name. We've seen how the narrator introduced him. We've considered what other characters have had to say about him. What else is there to say? Well, one of the main ways that characterization works in the Old Testament and in our lives is through our actions, right? And our words. We are characterized by the things that we do and say. Now, Nabal's response to David is just foolish, yeah? He screams at David's men and insults them and refuses to be hospitable. Proverbs 10.18 again, it suggests or it says that whoever utters slander is a fool, Naval. Proverbs 20 verse 3, every fool is quick to quarrel, looking for a fight. So Nabal's yelling or screeching, it's an interesting interesting sort of word. I just picture this guy up on his horse screaming in a high-pitched voice at people. His, His words and his actions are foolish because he's not thinking about the consequences. 
Have you ever jumped into action without thinking? When I was about uh, 12, we were on holidays, and I've got three brothers. We're out on this sort of playground area outside our, where we were on holiday, and I saw this huge tyre, you know, like a tractor tyre in the playground with a pole going through the middle so that it, it rotated. And there was about that much room at the bottom, about a foot. And I thought, without thinking too much, I thought if I jump on top of that and I really hug it, I could probably swing right through, right? So you're thinking too, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, how many of you think that's a good idea? It's a great idea. That's exactly what I thought, Nige. And so I jumped on top and I said to my brothers, watch this. And I hugged the tyre and it started to move. And as my head got closer and closer to the ground, I thought, this isn't a good idea. But it's too late. So I slipped off, as was inevitable. My head just went into the ground and the tyre went under my jaw. Yeah, it didn't feel good. And uh, I stood up. A little bit dazed, said to my brothers, how was that? And they said, you might want to go and look in the mirror. <laughs> so I went and looked in the mirror and smiled at myself and half of my front tooth was missing. <laughs> Have you ever jumped into action without thinking? Because this is how characterisation works. It's our words and our actions, the ways that we speak or scream, the ways that we treat others the things that we do, the ways we behave when no one's watching, when others aren't around. Characterization is vital. Now, we've noted many of the ways that Nabal, his character, is informed by the wisdom tradition. And it's interesting how many references there are from the book of Proverbs. Wisdom literature depicts this sort of binary system of moral values. On one hand, you've got foolishness, which leads to wickedness. And on that side, you've got all these proverbs about pride, a haughty spirit, and laziness. The sluggard turns on his bed, you know, these kinds of um, proverbs. On the other hand, you've got wisdom, which leads to righteousness. And you've got proverbs about humility, about self-discipline. And you've got this real binary moral world where in fact, you've even got Lady Wisdom on, on one side and Dame Folly on the other as these two personifications in the book of Proverbs that are inviting you, both of them, calling you to follow them. And, of course, these two ways of life lead to very different experiences of life and they, very, they lead to very different emotions or feelings in the parents of the person. Uh, in question. So Proverbs 17.21 says, the one who begets a fool gets trouble. The parent of a fool has no joy. Now in contrast to that, Proverbs 10 verse 1 and 15.20 both say the same thing. They say the opposite. A wise child makes a joyful father. Have a guess what Abigail means. Of Father, Avi, my father, and Gail, joy, my father's joy. Abigail, in contrast to Nabal, 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 Nabal the fool, her name means my father's joy. She brings her father joy. She's wise. She's prudent. And she is. Everything she does in the story, in contrast to Nabal, 
is wise. She's all the things that makes a dad proud and joyful, according to the wisdom literature. And she's actually introduced with a word that occurs again and again throughout Proverbs in verse 2. And how is she characterised? Well, now that we know how characterisation works, we should be able to go through this a little bit quicker. We've considered her name and found that she is the exact binary opposite of Nabal, her husband. We've noted that the narrator introduces her by saying that she's clever and beautiful. What do the other characters think of her? What do they say about her? Well, they certainly don't call her any names behind her back. So that's a good start. But on the contrary, she's trusted by them. I don't know if you noticed that. In verse 14, one of the young men comes to her and tells her everything that has happened. Everything that Nabal has said and everything that you know, David is plotting against them. And he's hoping that she will make things right. And he's come to the right person. Abigail is someone who can be confided in. She's perceptive. She understands people. And she will make things right. 1 Samuel 25, 18, verse 18 there, says she hurried back. She took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins. Not sure what that would do to your system. And 200 cakes of figs. <laughs> Abigail does what Nabal should have done, right? And look at her response in verse 23. When she, when she meets David, she, it says she hurried and alighted from the donkey. She fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. And she goes on and she does speak into David's ears a whole lot of words to make peace and to make things right. And so it goes for almost 10 verses as Abigail the wise diffuses the situation. Again, we see how characterization works. In her words, in her actions, in the ways that others perceive her and trust her. And again, I just I want to ask the question, how's your characterization going? How is your characterization going? Of these two paths that the book of Proverbs presents us with, which path are you walking? It's a path that's presented to us in Proverbs. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, two paths are before you, blessings and curses to Israel. Choose life, he urges them. The same two paths in Psalm 1 at the beginning of the Psalter. Here's one path, here's another. Choose well, choose wisely. And here in 1 Samuel 25, these two characters, these two approaches and ways to life. Which way are you going? Which path are you travelling? Now you might be thinking, this sounds a bit moralistic, Dr Jones. Chill out. You're beating us over the head with a stick. Maybe a better question, maybe the question we should be asking is, why does characterisation matter? It matters because God has entrusted us with his reputation. Astounding. God has entrusted us with his reputation. I went to a bit of a, a posh high school in Melbourne. Uh, 
And I remember in the first week being told all these rules about uniform. Make sure your tie's always done up, top button done up. This is down the trains on the way home. Socks pulled up just below the knees, shirt tucked in, all of it. Don't fail us on this one. I was thinking, come on. So first, first week of school, I'm at the station. Ah, it's hot, right? It's hot. We live in Australia. I undid my top button, loosened my tie. It looked cool just hanging there, you know. Pulled, pulled a bit of my shirt out, let my socks fall off my massive calves, which couldn't hold them up any longer. Why are you laughing, John? I'm standing there feeling cool, looking at all these other, you know, dweebs with their, <laughs> with their, their uniforms in spick and span, thinking, oh, I'm a bit too cool for that. And a prefect comes up, school prefect, and says, mate, I'm going to have to give you a detention. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, your tie's undone, your socks are down, your shirt's out. You know what the, you know, what the, and I was thinking, come on, it's first week of school. I said, I didn't know any of that. I did. I lied. I'm now on tape lying. <laughs> to be fair, I was about 12. Does that make it any better? No, it doesn't. But I got the detention, the first of 17 detentions that I got while I was at school. A lot of them related to uniform. My point is, in case you're wondering, we were told that we were representatives of the school. And that until we got all the way from the school to our homes, we had to dress in a way that represented the school. I find it astounding that God entrusts us with his reputation in the world. In the Old Testament, we see this in, in Jeremiah 13 with the image of clothing, that God says through Jeremiah, I wanted to wear Israel with pride, like a garment, but she's not listened and let me down. And in the New Testament, this image is intensified, isn't it? We are the body of Christ, hands, feet, eyes, ears, representing Christ to the world. And this theme, it runs right through Scripture like a golden thread. In Genesis 1, we're created to bear God's image in the world. In Deuteronomy 4, Israel is asked to obey the law, and we ask, why? Why do we have to obey all these laws? God says, Deuteronomy 4, 6, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. When Israel fails to obey that law and show God's character to the nations, Yahweh says this through Ezekiel, the nations will know that I'm the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. What a remarkable statement. This is after, during the exile when God's saying, we're going to have to pick up the pieces here for the sake of my name. Through you, I display my holiness before their eyes. What an amazing missional statement from the middle of the Old Testament. And all of this, of course, feeds into Paul's vision for the church. And in Ephesians 3.10, he declares, Through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So I say again, characterization is vital. It's vital. Because we've been invited to participate in something really special. God has entrusted us with his reputation. 
Let's pray. Lord, I praise you this morning because it's not left to us to just try harder. It's not left to us to just be holy as you are holy in our own strength. We thank you for your empowering presence this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit of wisdom, your spirit who inhabits our words, our actions, our thoughts, and even our motives. And so we ask this morning that you'd fill us with your spirit of self-discipline, your spirit of humility, of wisdom, and righteousness, that we may be faithful to your call upon our lives. Amen.